as you grow and you scale, you cannot have cowboys, you need team players. A cowboy might be an interesting beast to have as a startup. Somebody that is not a team player is going to say, I, 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 I. The team player is going to be the one that exhibits a little bit of trust. Listen to customers, really, really listen to what they say and their challenges. And if you solve that for one person or one company, you'll solve that for another hundred. Hi, I'm Liz Fong Jones. And I'm Charity Majors. And you're listening to Observability Cast, a monthly series about the art and science of making production systems observable, easy to maintain, and appropriately reliable. Ollicast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at Ollicast. That's O-11-Y-C-A-S-T, Ollicast. So I often say that tools create silos, right? Like if you have a team, uh, the the edges of where they stop using the tool and someone else starts using another tool um, accidentally creates a silo for that team. Have you seen this or or do you feel like we need to have like a common language that multiple teams can speak? Or do you feel like every team should have its own unique tool for its use case? So I totally agree with you. I think tools create silos. So in my previous life, I've seen it when I became in charge of monitoring at DoubleClick, where the system engineers will talk CPU stats, the network engineers will look at the capacity on their switches. And so everybody would, would look at their stats, but then nobody looked at the overall user experience or did, were we delivering ads and how fast we're delivering ads. And no matter how hard I tried, it was never they were never able to convert what I was talking to them about, like what is our quality of experience or quality of services into something meaningful to them. So yes, tools create silos, but I don't think we can get rid of those silos, right? We have to work with them, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. We, we just have to overlay more data and translate the data into their own languages until something else comes better, right? right? Do you think that tracing is going to save us? Is tracing the magical thing that ties all of these things together? Maybe. We'll see. I have a lot of hopes around tracing. There is a lot of adoption. There is a lot of buzz. There is a lot of excitement that I see with our customers. And I see it more in Europe than in the US for some reasons. Really? Yes. I see it a lot more in Europe than here. But it's starting to catch up. I think the open tracing, the fact that there is this universal language or this portability of the tracing, so you do the abstraction of the monitoring tool, I think is the way to go. I think it's a great start. I think we are all ready to stop innovating on ingestion. <laughs> yeah. So this sounds like a good moment to introduce yourself. Again, thank you so much for having me. So my name is Mehdi. Uh, I'm the CEO and co-founder of Catchpoint. We've been around for almost 11 years. Before that, I spent 11 years at both DoubleClick and a year at Google. And uh, Catchpoint is about 200 employees today, uh, five offices worldwide, and having a lot of fun. Nice. Five offices. Do you have teams that span locations or do you tend to have a single team embedded in a single location? Uh, So at the beginning, we had a very monolithic or very uh, siloed environment. So we had the engineering team in New York. Now they're everywhere. We have single contributors in Phoenix, in India, in Venezuela, in South America. So it's a little bit all over the place. So you don't even necessarily have people working in individual offices. You've kind of embraced fully remote or at least partially remote. Absolutely. I think that's the way to go. Uh, We get to the point where talent is so scarce that you have to adapt yourself and, and change. Exactly. 
And it becomes a justice, a, a thing of, of equality and justice too. Like for you have to give people opportunities even if they don't live in New York or San Francisco. Absolutely. And there are a lot of people that want to go back to where their families are because they're starting to raise children or get married and they need the, fam- the, the support. So the grandparents are there. So, so we're starting to embrace that and encourage it. So we had actually uh, just recently... Uh, one of our early, early engineers, a product managers, decided to move to Seattle and start start his family. So he's actually living in the woods in the Seattle area. So how has this influenced the technology that you build, the products that you build, the fact that you've gone distributed as a company? So I'm an immigrant to the U.S. myself, and so I'm a huge believer that uh, the more diverse you are, the more creative you are, the better ideas you have. So... I am a huge fan of the fact that we should not box ourselves in our thinking and where we get our folks and how we encourage creativity. So so we're fairly open about that. And I would also imagine that given what your company does, that having developers located in parts of the world that are not the U.S. means that you have very different experiences with people's bandwidth, with people's latency. <laughs> Liz, we just released our what we call our, our employee experience monitoring uh, solution that uh, now is focused on measuring the employee experience with SaaS applications because there is an explosion of that. Oh yeah, I remember when I worked at uh, Google, we had folks from the Australia office complaining that their source checkouts took 10 times as long as anyone else because there were so many round trips. Each round Mm. trip was like 500 milliseconds. Exactly. And I bet every transaction had at least 5,000 packets. You multiply that and you, you get to the numbers. So, so we just released that. And one of the things we're noticing is how actually the majority of the SaaS solutions we use are not fully distributed. So some of them are. The majority of them are not, even though they call themselves SaaS. They are still mapped to a data center in the East Coast because that's where we're headquartered. Oh God, right? Like everyone, US East One. <laughs> exactly. And so that's one thing we're noticing and it's a horrible employee experience. So I have my team in Bangalore that interacts with the CRM solution and they are literally 10 times slower than the guys in New York. Yeah, this is the thing that we, we see so often. These tools that get built by teams that live in Silicon Valley, they think that they're recruiting the best and the brightest, you know, so they, I have air quotes going right now, so they recruit all the ex-Googlers, all the ex-Facebook people, and then they build a tool that is only legible to ex-Googlers and ex-Facebook people. And this is something that, like, Christine and I were super aware of early on, and we intentionally went after, like, Hack Academy graduates and people, and they're, they're great engineers, but it's not because they themselves are individually, you know, the most brilliant engineers, but it's because you build a great team. The best teammates are not necessarily the best, you know, individual engineers. In fact, I find that there's almost an inverse correlation. When you're too good as a cowboy, you have a really hard time becoming a team player. Yeah, we don't have cowboys. Uh, we don't tolerate that across the board. We used to, and actually, what we found is uh, a cowboy might be an, an interesting uh, beast to have for the as a startup, but as you grow and you scale, you cannot have cowboys, you need team players. How did you navigate that transition? It never ends up very well at the end. (laughs) But uh, our hiring process, our interview process now takes into account whether or not that person is going to be a team player or not. So we see- How do we interview for good team players? Uh, You ask questions around, uh, walk me through a situation that you were in and you had to find a way out. And typically, somebody that is not a team player is going to say, I, 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 I. 
versus the team player is going to be the one that exhibits a little bit of trust. And what trust means is the ability to get naked in front of your coworkers and ask for help. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, and I think that there's really no better test than having someone actually sit and pair with some of your team for yes. a day. Like I know that Pivotal does that, and they, we do this they love too. It. Like Liz, you didn't actually get interviewed, but <laughs> I got special. interviewed by you know <laughs> pair, pairing with people on business strategy, <laughs> yes, that's, like that's, one whole afternoon at a time. That's true. Yeah, I mean, Liz, when uh, when I hire an executive to join my team, they actually come and spend the day with us, and we put them. We invite them to join the exec team meetings or whatever it might be. And we just want to see how they actually act versus pretend or play. When we're hiring engineers, we actually bias the process. This isn't what we said we were going to talk about, but I think this is interesting, so let's keep talking about it. We bias it so heavily towards communication skills. So like, we'll send a, a take-home coding test the night before. They're not expected to finish because we don't want them to spend all night on it, but like, spend an hour or two, then make a note of where you are and bring it in because th- that is not the actual interview. The interview is you come in the next day and you sit with a couple of people and you talk us through what you did and why and what the trade-offs are and what's left to do and where you left off because we believe that anyone who can communicate about what they've done can definitely do the work of writing the actual code. And the reverse is so not true. There are so many people who can write the code, but they can't tell you why or how or what the trade-offs were. And we believe people can learn whatever technical skills that they need as long as they have that ability to to communicate and to learn and to be humble and and like collaborate. And I will add something on top of what you said, which was brilliant, by the way, is the ability to also hear the other colleagues if they have an opinion on how they would do it differently and that ability to absorb that feedback that's one area we pay a lot of attention to especially on the engineering side is how they've taken that feedback and what are they going to do about it mm, the common thread that i'm picking out of all of this is kind of the idea of really focusing on not just measuring your customers' experiences, but measuring your employees' experiences, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it be in terms of the tools they use, in terms of the people you're bringing onto the team, that if you're not really able to understand what's going on, then you know you think everything's fine when it's actually not. It's slowly crumbling out from under you, or some people are coping with things that they shouldn't have to be. And you know, you can get away with that when you're a 20,000, 100,000 employee company, like you and I were at Google, right? But when you're a few hundred, 50, 20, one bad apple can literally destroy it. I would argue that you can't necessarily at 100,000 either. It's just more hidden. It's buried in layers. Well, cool. Now that we've just solved the problems of distributed co-working. (laughs) Um, But I actually do feel like there's a real space in the market for better tools around collaboration, for debugging. The same experience you get looking over each other's shoulder, right? But virtually. Which is why in Honeycomb we've baked in just the primitives for history, for example. Being able to go back through your history and see what you've done. And we really want to like incentivize people to add annotations so that the the original intent that's in your head gets put in the tools so that that becomes your source of truth um, rather than your faulty memory, right? Mm -hmm. And we haven't really had a lot of bandwidth to expand on these, but I'm so excited about it because teams are just like distributed systems. You know, every single node needs to be able to go down without destroying the cluster. Every single human needs to be able to go on vacation or go to sleep without destroying your forward progress. And I feel like there's a lot that we can learn. You know, the burnout that we, I mean, Liz is aware of this. We've done a few SRE surveys for the past few years. 
And last year, uh, we focused a lot on the on-call and the troubleshooting and the burnout. And, you know, when you talk to SREs these days, they almost have PTSD. So the question is, how do we, we cannot burn some of these amazing resources night after night, troubleshooting things. So how do we build this level of redundancy, as you mentioned, where somebody needs to be able to go on vacation or not be on call one day. Yes, but at the same time, we have to be sure not to paper over problems with like more and more human lives, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is an issue that I have with monitoring software. I feel like for too long we've had ops people sitting between software engineers who are writing code and the low-level systems, just sitting there interpreting the graphs, right? Just helping the software engineers understand the consequences of what they've shipped. And I've always said that I think that anyone doing ops is the most closely aligned Aligned with users of all of the engineering teams, right? Mm-hmm. Because when your users are in pain, you're in pain. Hmm. But sometimes it isn't the case, right? Like sometimes, sometimes the ops teams are working themselves to death over issues that are not actually That's affecting less common, end users. But also true, yeah. Right. Like the prototypical, your disk is ninety percent full, ninety percent full, right? Right. So I think that you know this is why I think this conversation is really interesting in that you know you cannot have observability without measurement of user experiences yeah. but nor can you operate your system solely on the signal of are users in pain or not without the ability to dive in. Yes. Absolutely. So obviously observability is something that is uh, very popular these days. How would you define observability? For me, uh so it's funny I'm going to age myself so in 1999, I decided to quit because I was tired of the double-click system going down every two minutes. So I, I, I sent my resignation email to our CEO at the time, and he said, well, stop whining about it. You're now in charge of monitoring. Fix it. So that's how I got into the monitoring business to some degree. And um, so we created this, this group. We didn't call it the monitoring tools. We didn't call it the tooling team. We call it the quality of service. And so my vision was, how do we look at all the telemetry, all the signals we were getting from, you know, we had 17 data centers, 5,000 ad servers, thousands of switches and networks and all kinds of gears and storage systems. So we had like literally millions of metrics coming in. And you don't know which metrics are important, right? Right. (laughs) And so the madness was like, okay, who's going to sit and look at all these charts? You know, nobody. So for me, observability was like, how do we put in place, and this is again, without the word observability, the concept was how can we tie the user metrics, which is at the end of the day, what pays our paychecks? Uh, That's what keeps our businesses going. So how do we tie the customer metrics that we were getting with the IT telemetry that we were getting and how do we find the correlation or how do we connect the dots, right? So our goal was how do we build tools to connect the dots? So at the time, we there were not many open source projects and tools out there, but so we ended up buying this software from Smarts and this is a company that I think got acquired by EMC uh, later on, but it was one of the best correlation engine that I've seen at the time that was literally able to... So your answer is secret sauce? Yeah, I guess. Interesting. Okay. Or at least at the time that the yeah. best that people could do for observability was trying to do automatic metric correlation. Right, exactly. But right, the, the goal was still the same, right? The goal is your system is failing and you're trying to figure out why. So it sounds like it's not necessarily that the why of, of observability has changed since 1999. It's that the how of what's possible has changed. Exactly. 
it's really the how that is changing. I think it's going to keep getting better. But so going back to your question, which is what's my definition of observability, is the ability to connect various dots from all this telemetry lake that we have and how can we quickly answer what is broken? Why? So it sounds like you have a similar definition to me. And, and I'm coming from the perspective of what is different about observability than monitoring, right? Because like monitoring, like I've been on call since I was 17 and I'm very used to the, you know, the process of, oh, you know, something breaks, you fix it, you postmortem, you write a monitoring check and you make a dashboard so you can find it immediately the next time, right? That works great when you're only finding these genuinely new things, you know, once every couple of weeks or months right? Most problems used to be pretty predictable when you had a single app tier and a single database tier and you Which could kind of look at it. Which on the other hand was kind of like an awful experience, right? Like you write the playbook yes. once and then yes. you get paid for the same thing and you apply the oh, playbook terrible. 20 times, oh right? Oh my god, it was awful. And so now we've kind of matured out of that, right? We, we, we now, every time you get paged, it should be something new. It should be something that you're seeing for the first time because the assumption is that you've automated away. You've, you will move the problems from the immediate, it's down, you need to go, human needs to go fix it. You move it from that bucket into the it's auto-remediated and a human can wake up and get to it on their own damn time and get it into the non-critical state without affecting your users, right? Because like the golden rule is make many things able to fail without your users ever noticing, right? So we've gotten better at resiliency. So, uh, I mean, it's an amazing vision. I think that's where we're going to end up no matter what, in the very near future. But you have to remember that you're still dealing with a lot of organizations that are not equipped to, to do this, Absolutely. Right? And that brings us kind of to the next topic we wanted to talk about, which is like, how do you get from point A to point B? Like, what was your own evolution, right? So you were in 1999, you kind of brought on this like magic system that started doing automatic correlation. How did you evolve from there? So one of the big things that we did back then, and this started in 99 as well, and it, it took us two years, is we ended up, we wanted to put a what would be called an APM product by today's standard. So there were not that many choices, or the choices were the typical vendor, CA, uh, Netcool, Micromuse. So these are tools that, that date us all. And then the price tag was insane. It literally would have costed us about $30 million to put an APM in place back then. So we ended up actually going back and building our own APM at DoubleClick and very similar to what Google ended up using in, the, in their own when it comes to just like every system had a web page that you can screen scrap and find the data and the, the metrics and everything. So we built this uh, this APM system and it was extremely useful where it was agentless or at the code level, we gave APIs to the engineers and we told them, listen, you know best how to monitor your system. I'm not going to tell you how to monitor your system. So implement this API, send us the heartbeat data, send mm, us... Yeah, that idea of having engineers have ownership over their telemetry, but giving them frameworks to make it easy. That sounds very familiar to us. And that is, in my opinion, what we need to do rather than just keep putting agents and agents and agents on stuff and also it doesn't scale with with serverless containers all that stuff so do you have the engineers need to own monitoring uh, so that was one of the evolution that we were part of uh, back then that was phenomenal to be honest because you know we went back to telling the engineers hey you want to sleep better at night then instrument your system instrument your application 
Otherwise, we're going to force some telemetry on you. It's not going to mean anything to your application. You're going to get that alert at 90% disk utilization. So what would you recommend a team today do? Where should they start? So where do people start? So this is something I see uh, on a daily basis where I think sometimes teams take on too much. They try to bite on a bigger thing. They go on this massive project that takes sometimes three years. So let me give you a scenario. You've got a team. They're paging themselves. They really care about their systems. And they're doing their best, but they're kind of drowning in alerts. Where do you start? So turn off the alerts. Literally, uh, turn off the alerts. I've done it many times. And, uh, and make sure that you go back and you look at what is going to get the CEO of your company to call you at night because he got the phone calls from 20 other customers. What is that single thing? Right, that's getting to the point of service-level objectives, right? Prior to service-level objectives, but the same concept. Exactly. So you have to pick one metric, one system, whatever it is. Just start there. Fine-tune your processes, your escalations, your everything that goes around monitoring. You say fine-tune your processes, but what does that mean exactly? What would you recommend that a team start doing? So you've turned off all your alerts. You found one, you know, end-to-end health check around something that makes you money to, to care about. Now, what is the next step that you take? Well, so at that point, what we end, what I, and I get involved sometimes with some folks to do this. You document that. What did we learn? What did we do? What are the the thresholds that worked? If any thresholds were necessary, was there performance threshold? Was there reachability threshold? where their reliability, because that's the other thing that people don't think about, is like... It. So you're saying start doing retrospectives. Exactly. Retrospectives, and right, like we talk about SLOs being a living document, right? Not the thing that you're afraid to touch, but a thing that you can revisit. And in order to revisit, you need to understand why it was set so up the way it was. Your software is a living system. It's always changing. Your users' requirements are a living system, and so it should be constantly revised and I kind updated. of also want to take a brief step back, and I want to say that the thing I'm noticing here is like monitoring alone does not buy you observability, yes. right? Like that you can have all the monitoring in the world, but it sounds like basically you have to iterate and kind of figure out how you find the right things to look at. And yeah. that's kind of And that's about asking questions, right? And like observability, I think, comes back to the the idea that you should be able to ask any question, understand any state that your system has gotten itself into, even if you've never seen it before, even if you don't have any code that handles it. So it's about capturing the data at the right level of abstraction that you have the data that to answer these questions. And then that gets to Mehdi's point about like, hey, you need to have the engineers instrumenting their code so that they can understand. Turns out the people who build it have the original intent in their heads and understand it better than anyone else can if they just come in the door and impose something on them. Yeah, you see, we we started with the silos, right? You don't want an ops team and a whatever team. So that's why the telemetry that we're gathering is the unifying glue across all these teams. It's a universal language. Yes. If you use the same telemetry, right? Like if the if same te- if different teams are using the same telemetry and have the same unified view, then you're not arguing about is it down or not. Yeah. You can you can see the same the same data. The thing that I still see 99% of the visits I do with customers is the finger pointing that happens within an organization. So this is why you constantly need to have this conversation so that everyone buys into it. No one and wants to have something imposed blame, on right? them. Like it sounds like you're talking about blame as well. Oh yeah. I mean, listen, we went through this when at DoubleClick, I mean, we didn't do a lot of blaming, but but then when Google acquired us and we went through uh, the grind machine and 
you know, we started doing a root cause analysis that were blameless. And I'll tell you, the first series were a little bit hard because you had to put, you had to leave the, the blame at the door. But that's how we learn. And again, we have to use telemetry because that's the mathematics, right? The two and two equals four. Even if we met people from Mars today, they will understand that. So to recap, kind of set up the standards for how you collect telemetry, encourage developers to write their own telemetry and add data to the system, and then kind of start approaching things with the retrospective approach, with kind of taking blame out of the equation. And then where does that get get you to? How can you measure progress? Yeah, I mean, you know, the golden rules, everybody's talking about those kind of things. There is the SRE book. So everybody is trying to implement all these all these amazing concepts and they're trying to to cook them with their own recipes within their own companies. Because once again, one thing that people are making some mistakes, which is like, oh, let's try to do what Google does. No, you shouldn't do what Google does. Take those principles and apply it to your company because you're not Google, you're not Facebook. And it's great that you want to become like that, but you know the resources are a different scale. So implement the right process for your company, for your thing, rather than trying to imitate others. But it's really about reliability. And this is where I, I go back to, once you have all these things, all these right telemetry processes, et cetera, the question I ask sometimes my team and, and others, like, was our performance, our, re- our reliability, our performance and availability the same at 2 o'clock in the morning versus 2 o'clock in the afternoon? Does that necessarily matter, though? I would argue that that's not necessarily important for everyone. Well, if you don't have customers at 2 o'clock in the morning, I agree. It's not about the maximum possible reliability. It's about um, your customers' expectations and and meeting them. Yeah, I think that Mehdi and we are talking about the same thing, right? Like, this is why I hate time period-based SLOs, right? Your 2 a.m. matters less than your 2 p.m. if you're a business hours like peak business, right? You should weight your SLO by the number of requests and not by just, you know, number of time windows. Instead of reliability, the other word I use is how consistently are you delivering that level of service that you're, you promised people? Mm, I love that, consistency. Yeah, that's a good way of thinking about it, right? And, and it avoids you thinking about perfection, right? It's consistency. If I'm serving 1% errors all the time, then that's consistent, right? People's expectations are they hit reload if they encounter an error one in 100 times. Right. <laughs> but if it goes 100% down, then that's not consistent. I love that. Right. So... Mehdi, one thing I heard you say is that you as a CEO make visits to your customers. Tell us a little bit more about that. Like you're a, what, 100, 200 person employee company. What's the value that you get out of visiting your customers? Yeah, so I live in Los Angeles. Our headquarters are in New York, so I'm usually always in New York. So I I, I clock about 400,000 miles a year. And uh, part of that is uh, at least every week I must visit two or three customers. I must speak to two or three customers. So I do this for two reasons. One is to keep my sanity, to make sure that we're still on the right track, uh, make sure that uh, I don't get surprises from a, an upset customer or an angry customer or anything of that nature. But really what's interesting is, and I learned that double-click day, we, we went through a great university when it came to customer management, is you, if you listen to customers, if you really, really listen to what they say and their challenges, and if you solve that for one person or one company, you'll solve that for another hundred. So I am very close to the to our customers because we want to get ahead of what challenges that they're trying to solve. And I think we care. And the other thing is uh, when we started the company in 2008, it was obviously a great year to start the company. I highly recommend great vintage year. Uh, the economy was uh, 
was burning and uh, we couldn't raise uh, funding. And so we self-funded the company. But uh, in 2010, our customers became our investors. And uh, so literally we bootstrapped it, but our customers saved us. And so I have this uh, very weird relationship with our customers where I look at them as our first investors, all 450 of them. And so I go and visit them to thank them, to listen to them, to hear about their problems. But again, just to show the appreciation we have for the awesome responsibilities they've given us. That sounds amazing. I hope we can keep doing that uh, between you and Christine Charity uh, as we scale out. Yeah, please never stop. Excellent. Well, I think that we have reached the end of our time together. So thank you so much for coming in and talking to us, Mehdi. Thank you. It was a pleasure and an honor to be with both of you. Thanks for joining us for this conversation. If you're interested in being a guest on a future show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at OllieCast. That's O-1-1-Y-Cast. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit HeavyBit.com. And while you're there, check out their library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tool companies and other industry leaders. Hope to see you next time.